I'll just introduce Senna first, um, and we'll be, Senna will help give a presentation, and then we'll have a conversation with Ahmad, who I'll introduce now too. So Senna Morani is an associate professor in spatial practice at the University of Plymouth. She studied architecture at the Baghdad University School of Architecture, both at the undergraduate and postgraduate levels, and then consequently um, received her PhD um, in the UK. Um, she has an upcoming book, which is a really, really huge achievement. So we should all congratulate her. Um, in 2024, with Bloomsbury entitled Rupturing Architecture, Spatial Practices of Refuge and Response to War and Violence in Iraq. And she'll speak about the exhibition in relation to that book later. We're very, very fortunate to have with us Ahmad Azuz. Um, who will help us put all of Sena's work in context, in the context of Syria. Um, Ahmad is a research associate at the University of Oxford and a lecturer in heritage studies at the University of Essex. He studied architecture and home Syria before moving to the UK to complete his PhD at the University of Bath. And he also has a book, which is a very, very huge achievement, um, with Bloomsbury entitled Domicide, architecture, war, and the destruction of home in Syria. So this evening, we'll start with a brief presentation from Sana, um, and then we're very fortunate to have some of the research participants that were part of this work um, with us, I believe, in the room as well as online. So we'll be hearing from them, and then we will have a short moderated discussion between us and then open it to the floor afterward. And we should wrap up around 7, 10 past 7, and then go downstairs to see the exhibition. So with that, floor is yours. Thank you, Dina. And thank you, everyone, for attending. <clears throat> um, just ad adjusting this. Um, so as I mentioned, um, the 2003 invasion happened a week before um, I finished my master's in Iraq in architecture and urban studies in Baghdad University. And um, I think Iraqis weren't expecting the intensity of the invasion to be the way it was. Um, we're not strangers to wars, we've seen plenty before, um, but this one just seems just that one bit more intense than it was. Um, it, it ever was before. Um, this all happened during the time that, um, so just before the invasion, all Iraqis were preparing their homes and making adjustments in, inside and outside their homes to uh, kind of um, expect the unexpected in a way. And we've learned to sellotape across our windows, to barricade some with um, and block, block them with actual bricks and block work to protect from um, debris and um, shrapnel and, and, and bullets. But we also um, learned from the previous war, from the first Gulf War, that the scarcity of clean water was a big issue. So a lot of Iraqis decided to dig up wells inside their front gardens. And that was one of the new in interventions that we did in ahead of 2003 at the beginning. Um, but it was unfortunate to then receive um, the testing from the lab 
saying um, unfit for human consumption contains traces of crude oil. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Iraq. Um, so you would expect that we um, live in near an oil refinery, but in reality, we actually live in a um, residential neighborhood right in the west of Baghdad, which is called Al Amriya. And it's notoriously known for quite a lot of um, things, including the 1991 uh, bomb shelter, the civilian bomb shelter that got bombed. And that was very close to where we lived. But an Amriya had something else to it, which was um, incredibly close to, so this map will explain this, incre incredibly close to the uh, main airport in the city. And the road that takes you from now the so-called green zone, um, previously the presidential palace, straight into the airport from the south. And from the north, it's the road that takes you outside through Abu Ghraib into the west of the country and completely outside into Jordan. And again, Abu Ghraib, as you may also have heard um, of another notorious prison story that um, is associated with that. So we, we were lodged in the middle between those two main roads, knowing that potentially if a progress of an invasion would happen through land, those two roads would be strategic to secure. And so they did. Um, when, during all of this, Bombs were raining down, not falling. Um, they were heavily raining down to the point that we actually lost track of how to um, count them because with the lack of electricity, there is nothing going on. There was only a small radio that my dad had nearly glued to his ear. Um, and there was nothing to hear other than the sound of explosions and the ground shaking intensely, but constantly for weeks. During that time, I think I had a coping mechanism, which was to imagine and think of scenarios of how the invasion would become, would, would progress into the city. And as an architect, I was always interested in looking at how maps reveal things that potentially might you might not just see communicated in the real world. But I'm also interested not just in the geographical or geospatial types of maps, I'm also interested in those mental maps, conceptual maps that are constructed in our minds. And I remember doing a lot of different versions of these maps in my head and they were redrawn and drawn with every bit of news that we were hearing off my dad's radio and every bit of um, um, uh, missile falls on the, into the ground. The government collapsed in April, so it wasn't very long, so between March and April um, 2003. And with that, the only route to um, um, Jordan was that exact same route um, through Abu Ghraib. And 
two months later, I took the road, that journey, through that road outside of Iraq, leaving behind um, my parents at the time and my 19-year-old daughter, uh, daughter, sorry, sister. <laughs> my daughter is only 11. <laughs> um, and, and the dog, um, the family dog. But at that time, I will just kind of contextualize how quickly things deteriorated. So this is literally two months in between, three months in between. Iraq had descended into complete chaos. Um, we had just the start off of um, the looting and the burning of public buildings. Lawlessness was rife. Um, uh, the, uh, the 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 car bombing, the um, suicide bombs were everywhere, and they became part of Iraqis' daily life since. So I left very early, in comparison to the stories that you will see and read downstairs. This is like a drop of the ocean of what I'm telling you in terms of the series of traumas and the series of events that occurred in the lives of Iraqis that are that have shared with me so much, um, which I'm incredibly grateful to. So on that note, I would like to thank them for their time, for the um, for pouring all of that energy, but also all of the traumatic stories, having to relive them again for the sake of making these stories heard. I have not gone as quick as I needed to with the slides. I'm sorry. So this project is a three-part project. And the exhibition that you will see downstairs is the third part of that project, you will be pleased to hear. Um, it started with a book idea, and the book is uh, still in the making. The book has the, the four chapters, and one of the main chapters is the discussion that I've had with all of the Iraqis that you see downstairs. It's based on the idea of storytelling, but also on mapping, which I do, and I work with um, the, 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 the idea of deep map mapping, where I look at history, I look at the geography, I look at the stories that they tell, but I also look at the spatial changes in the environment that they've done. So there's quite a lot of layers within each of the maps that you will see as well. The book also looks at the period between the 2003 and now, in a way, so the 20 years in total, passing by very important but main events that changed the course and lives of many Iraqis. But more importantly for the project, it also changed the way people um, lived their lives inside the home and outside it into cities. It changed the shape of the cities. It changed the way people navigate and understand cities and negotiate that trauma through cities. So um, the events are the 2003, as you know, as well as the sectarian violence, which happened and peaked in between 2006 and 2007. 
But obviously that did not stop and the changes that happened, especially the mobility and displacement, internal displacement in the country that changed the course of the urban um, um, kind of speciality of the city. And then up to the 2014, um, the ISIS atrocities in Mosul and in Sinjar. And then it also discusses the changes that happened since and during the 2019 um, revolution, the um, Tishreen revolution, and until we got to the 2020 COVID-19 and what that did to, to Iraq. So it kind of engages with all of those, but the book also engages with three different scales. It engages with the scale of the home and the domestic space and the changes throughout that, throughout the history of that time. It engages with the urban context and the villages and the movement and the migration, well, the displacement that happened from cities out into um, countryside and back again. Um, several times, in fact, during the last 20 years. And it also engages with the borders. And I say borders because Iraq has multiple borders with neighboring countries, but also there are what I call soft borders, which are between um, big parts of the country, like between the Kurdish area and the rest of Iraq, and so on and so forth. So it engages with all of those layers and differences and across all of that time. So that's the book. The archive came about because I really wanted to show this um, more openly and um, more accessible um, format to a wider audi audience. And I received funding from the British Institute for the Study of Iraq for this to um, put the archive up, which had come live on the 20th anniversary exactly. So that's exactly two weeks um, today, well, two weeks ago today. Um, and the third part is the exhibition. And the exhibition is really because a lot of what I was trying to do is not to keep it inside a book or somewhere where it's not seen, but as it happens, the um, um, I, I was introduced to the Middle East Center and the events that they were organizing through a friend of mine, Daif, um, and she introduced me to the amazing Nadine, who's been helping me organize all of this over the last four months. And this is an event that is funded by the um, Middle East Center uh, in LSE. Um, but also, I must mention my institution, who's been incredibly supportive of my work. So that's University of Plymouth as well. Um, downstairs, you will see two different things um, in that space. There is a wall which is full of maps and individual maps of people, uh, people's stories. And this is a... Um, each map tells a specific story, which potentially might cross across all of that period. Some of them focused on specific periods, especially people who have been subjected to particular type of um, trauma, like the genocide that happened with the Yazidis. So that was more of a focused um, type um, event. And some of them really cross cut the entire 20 years uh, in the way it's, it, it's done. And opposite that, 
there is um, two glass cabinets and they contain the photographs that were shared with me by all of the 15 participants. And um, I've created uh, depictions, 3D depictions of the um, specific times of trauma that they shared with me that meant something to them that still lingered in, in, in their minds. And these are exhibited in, in that. And between the two glass cabinets, there is draping um, yarn. Um, please do use it to put feedback for the project, for the work, for the exhibits, but also for the participants themselves. Um, and I think I should end on here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think now we have some time to hear from the various people that you spoke to. Um, I think we have some in the audience as well as some online. Only um, a few people wanted to talk. I don't know. Sure. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you want to? Yeah. Um, okay. Ali, did you want to come and speak, please? Put your mic on. Yeah. Uh, good evening, Sana. Good evening, LSE. And um, good evening to my partners in displacement. And good evening to. Uh, my UOM colleague, Dr. Rawakash, good evening to everybody. So uh, it has been a real pleasure to be part of this, Sana, to, to, to tell my story and, uh, and share with the rest of the Iraqis. Um, like during this project and uh, texting and talking and meeting with you virtually, like I kept contemplating about 20 years, Iraqis from different parts of Iraq. And that's what makes us Iraqi, the displacement, the, the violence, the sectarianism, like all of it. Um, Sana, you, you thoroughly covered this uh, topic, so I'm not going to, to headache you all with, uh, with my opinion. But what I want to share with you is what the circle of violence has created for Iraq, starting from like the, er the early 80s up to the present day. So the, the perspective that I want to share with you is is, is a kind of a future perspective. Many of my colleagues in the University of Mosul and in, in the city of Mosul, they, they left. They left to, to Baghdad, they left to, to, to the Kurdish area during the occupation of ISIS. And after the liberation, some of them came back, uh, others did not. So this future trauma is still haunt, haunting us as Iraq. So those who came back, they, they kept their apartments or houses rented in Kurdistan. And, and those who did not, they, they fixed their homes in Mosul, but they are still in Kurdistan area and they come to campus. It's about a 90 minute drive from, from Erbil to Mosul and, and back home. The question remains for them. And the question remains for most of the Muslawis that, that, uh, that I know, that they keep asking, what is next or who is next? 
and when the next uh, circle of violence is going to happen. So this question is, is quite headaching and, and quite traumatizing. Iraq is still fragile in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of safety. Like circle of violence is not related to, to ISIS only. There are many, many, many actors um, on the Iraqi soil. I hope that what I'm saying is just a myth or a superstition, but, but through my reading of the, um, of the Iraqi map, of the Iraqi um, uh, changes during um, uh, the, the post-ISIS era, like we, ke we keep hoping that nothing will happen, but the question is inevitable. What is going to happen next? Thank you, Sana. Thank you, Ali. Rahat, did you want to say something? Good evening, everyone. I am happy to listen to the, uh, the happened, what happened in my city because the time in uh, 12 Ramadan, uh, the period I, I am student in the master. Uh, I think uh, that some person uh, Reason why I extension my uh, time to finish two years to change four years in my master. This one reason, the the time in the two, 12 Ramadan is very important for me because all time remember what happened for me the special uh, because I'm student on the master degree. Um, the period is different. In 1990 and 2003, uh, is different into 2040. Because in the uh, I remember in 19 more 19, 1990, every uh, families go out the center. You found uh, uh, the place is is not the danger, but in the in the, in the 12 Ramadan. In 2040, the families, when the start is go out, and again immigration uh, outside the, uh, the the city to go the inside. And then, and then 2017, all the families in the inside in the center is more more people is died, uh, especially in the in, in the side of the right side of uh, Mosul city. And the right side, Mosul city is the old uh, city, contained more house, uh, the, uh, the building before uh, 400 years, some mosque, some church, some special uh, housing. Now I visit my uh, old city before uh, uh, one week because uh, tomorrow I am travel. I arrived in the UK in 5 April, I survey some and take them some picture, maybe three or 4,000 uh, image and picture. Everything is top, just to clean the street. All the heritage building is the same, not change. If change is not uh, academic uh, tools, everything is rubbish, I think. Uh, maybe the books or another uh, books to help my city how to start uh, the new uh, life of of the 
all families. Now to start to drive to uh, return to again, because the uh, people in my city is very, very strong, I think. is my opinion, uh, because everything I see in the eyes and uh, uh, and uh, I take the picture in the people, the people is happy in the market, in the street. I think it starts again, maybe a good chance. I don't know what uh, in the future, what happened. I think it's good. Thanks so much about anyone to help my city. Thank you, Rad. Just to contextualize um, what uh, both Rad and um, Ali has just said. So um, the, you will see lots of contributions from people, but they come from the north to the south of Iraq, covering all different um, um, backgrounds, all different religious groups, all different. And I in intentionally wanted to have a voice from each, even though we did not discuss anything ar around religion, but it was really important for all of those people to have a voice because that's what the collectiveness of Iraq is. But as it happens, both speakers are from Mosul. So just to contextualize that, the, the, what they were talking about was around Mosul. Anyone else want to speak from the participants? Okay, thank you. Um, so we're just going to have a brief conversation. Um, I'll be speaking both to Sana and Ahmad. And um, in all honesty, I gave them a few questions, but I'm going to change it up slightly <laughs> based on what we've just um, listened to. So um, I think uh, in academic research, the sort of name of the game is that when you have a research participant, it's predicated on them being anonymous. And this is the sort of um, you know everyday practice that is instilled in the academy today. And obviously that's not happened here today. And I'm like to ask you, I mean, I think um, those of us in diaspora communities, um, there's a heavy weight when we do research on those places that um, we wish that we could visit. Maybe we can no longer visit. We were displaced from them. We were never allowed to go there in the first place, et cetera. And when we speak about traumatic events, there's even a, you know, more of a weight, I think, and um, responsibility in the research that we do. So um, I think in relation to bringing the participants here, but then also generally, you know, how do you reconcile those considerations um, with your work and, and also what kind of principles, explicit or implicit, do you kind of foreground when you begin this work? I think it's a really important work. I think there's there's been a lot of work done um, in diaspora with displaces um and i wanted and i've always engaged with um that side of research through participatory equal participatory co-design type um uh relationship uh, it, it was always that we're on par with 
the participants, and I actually call them researchers, and even in the book they're called researchers, because a lot of the findings that came out of the conversations that I've had with them were based on what they told me, and it was it was truly participatory that we discovered some key themes through the conversation. Um, and I give them that credit. And I have always done in the past working, I've, I've had several years now working with um, refugees and um, displaced people across Europe, uh, working on projects to map ideas of home and belonging and, um, and engaging with the meaning of what home could be in the diaspora. Um, and in every single project, their names are there, the voices are loud. In fact, there are big chunks of text, which I'm absolutely sure Bloomsbury are gonna come back and say, you need to cut this, this quote is too long. But I'm keeping those quotes because it wasn't about me, it was about the collective voice of Iraqis. And I intentionally intend to keep the um, quotes that you see downstairs, which are long, but they are intentionally long because it, it conveys a deep meaning and, 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 a, and a traumatic story that needs to have that space. So there is there is certainly that level of engaging. And, and um, I think it helps that we have a shared lived experience of the trauma. And I think, um, again, from previous experience of working on projects with refugees, it always, um, we always connected very quickly and that trust came very quickly when I said, I also have lost a home. And that kind of edge of the white researcher who's completely removed from the context completely disappeared. And it, we became one level. We're discussing the same thing. I don't know how you find it. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, having us here today and thanks for everyone for coming. Um, it's really like a full on house. It's really humbling. And Ramadan Mubarak for those practicing because I'm fasting myself with no water or food until 7.35. Um, but happily joining uh, Sana. Um, so the question I think of like the diaspora is very critical and just a little bit about myself. Um, for, I see some familiar faces, so sorry for the repetition, but like I'm Syrian from Homs, which is the third largest city in Syria after Damascus and Aleppo. More than half of the city is destroyed. Um, I have left 12 years ago in 2011 and I have never been able to return. Um, so um, the idea of forced displacement is so crucial to me. And I think the weight of responsibility and the sense of urgency that we feel like we should do something it's like always carried on our shoulders. And sometimes I even met doctors shifting their careers to work on humanitarian or dentists, leaving their medical care to work on research that doesn't have to do anything with medical medicine, but it has to do with Syria, for instance. So people in diaspora, because there is also the survival guilt by many people who would feel it, there is always this trauma of like, how can I just give myself a permission to live a life, but always feel like I'm doing something back to the country that I see struggling and suffering from afar. 
And in that process, what I like about um, many reasons to like Senna's work, but one of them is also looking at the creativity that emerges in that space. Because now in my country, more than 7 million people have been displaced outside the country. So imagine it's, and some countries are, it's the population of some countries, you know, 7 million people. So in that space for more than 12 years, a lot of work, scholarly work emerged, a lot of artistic work emerged, a lot of festivals and richness of culture emerged, such as celebrating Syria in Manchester, it's a great festival, or the Sakov Festival here in London, or um, even like our friends and connections uh, from the Arab world, they established this platform called Arab Urbanism a few years ago by our colleagues, uh, Dina, you know them uh, well, uh, from the same uh, department, Noura Wahbi and uh, Nadi Abu Saada from Egypt and Palestine, respectively. So in somehow there's a lot of work happening mm. um, uh, in this space, uh, I know that uh, some of my colleagues here, even like Nisreen Rafah, I continue the the writing, for instance, from afar, uh, our friends and solidarity. So there's so much work happening outside. And I think it's important to, to look at the differences because people outside have, especially the forced displaced who cannot return, have different um, a way of looking and way of seeing of the homeland. And sometimes it can be nostalgic and can be romanticized in comparison to people who remain. But other diasporic communities, they can still return. Let's say if somebody is, I know some Syrians who still return to the country. So their their way of looking, I think, is different from mine. And I think it's always important to look at the positionality and to think about what are we looking at and why and what are the questions we are asking and how can we break the divide between the insides and the outside? Because I feel in my case, the bridge is so wide. Yeah. And people like Ali, Varoudi um, from Mosul, he's, um, he's like a window to us to see what's happening inside. He does like incredible work uh, with his photography um, and with his uh, uh, public speaking, with his um, sharing of ideas. And I feel it's so important to build bridges between those who remain inside and those who leave, and especially the force displaced. Um, so that's a tiny bit of reflection. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that actually leads to my next question. So, I mean, I think those of us that work on the Middle East, um, there's a lot of focus um, for better or worse, on sort of conflict and destruction. And this leads us to focus on particular actors, um, unfortunately, the, the state, namely the state. And I mean, obviously your work doesn't take that approach and just seeing all of these obstacles and let's say spatial challenges um, in the context, I haven't worked on Palestine in a while, but in the context of Palestine, there is so much work on the kind of spatial infrastructure of Israeli colonization. But sometimes what gets lost in that is sort of this other story. So you focus on, let's say, everyday people and their spatial practices. How does you know shifting that lens help us rethink what actually violence and war even are and even what trauma is and, and how architecture and the built environment are part of this story and understanding the implications of these acts? I think I I would look at the question from a different angle. Um, and again, off the back of what Amar just mentioned, this focus on 
the creative speciality that comes out of people trying to find refuge or create refuge in an incredibly volatile kind of situation. Um, I was really interested in understanding what was happening in the rest of Iraq when Baghdad was getting bombarded heavily. There was this thing of wanting to stitch this tapestry of very different ways of understanding how you would create places of refuge very quickly. There is, there is an, another layer to this, which is the fact that Iraqis, but also any um, country that has been subjected to um, changes, uh, you know, volatility in the changes of the conditions that they're under, whether they're political or environmental or, um, or, or, or whatever else, everything is changing incredibly quickly. And so their response is incredibly quick. And I think that agility in knowing how to create those spaces of survival really interested me because I thought we as architect, designers, planners, um, urbanists could really make a, a lot of sense out of this new design kind of practice, or not new, but it's it's just the spontaneity of, of that design practice that comes with incredible quick pace. I mean, people had rugs, you know, dragged out of their, you know, under their feet very quickly, and they had to react very quickly. And I was really, that was my main kind of focus and interest, more so than trying to understand how to relate the trauma. I think I related this, the, the, the spatial conditions to the people and their responses. Trauma just happened around them everywhere. And um, there wasn't a way of escaping that. I talk in the book about how rupture, which is the word that I use for the title of the book, but also for the title of the exhibition, um, has this action, an active meaning of rupturing to make home, to make a refuge, to make a space, but also rupture that actually destructs and changes you know, a, a built environment. So it's got that double edge meaning to it. Uh, you know, it, it depends on the conditions that people are, um, uh, you know, having to struggle with. Yeah. You wanna... Can I comment? Yeah. Um, I like when I was uh, reading Sana's introduction for her book, uh, she says, I this book does not have numbers in it which means she said, I don't want to put people's numbers of displaced or numbers of killings or numbers of destroyed buildings. And then somehow it was a way to escape from turning the pain of people into um, statistics, which we see in the UN reports, in the news agencies. And then somehow the stories that you bring into the map and this, the stories of the everyday life and somehow humanizes and individualizes the struggle of what it means to be Iraqi or what it means to live in a time uh, of war and um what i i love in the context of syria there's this author she lives in homs she, she writes with a different name under the name munarafi she writes about the everyday life she describes people's faces their uh, their habits their uh, their everyday life including uh, they still want to buy clothes and look fashionable 
And for me, what I loved about that is that, yes, the war happens and it damages and continues to damage, but the everyday life continues and people still want to continue their life regardless of all this. And this is maybe what Rad has put it very eloquently in on Zoom when he said, people are strong. Yeah, People are strong here. It's definitely, it's the strength of the people. It's the faith of the people. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much damage to the built environment, the people would make these places alive. It's not about rebuilding a, a mosque or a church or a bridge. It's not the stones. It's the people and their everyday life and their community spirit that would bring the community. Yeah, I mean, I think on, on that point, um, when you go downstairs, you'll see these images and there's, they're a composite of maps, photographs, the, you know, the 3D depictions, and then it's a collage and it's a very mixed media process um, that I was curious if you, I mean, related to what Ahmad has just said about the, you know, the text versus the numbers versus the image, maybe talk a little bit about that process of developing that visual language. Um, how did you do it? Did it change and, and so on? Yeah. Um, this was a, I mean, it's always a, a very lengthy process, but I used, um, time is is part of it. So nothing happens very quickly within this. Um, the hour and a half, to sometimes two hours conversations that I've had with people, which were sort of open interviews, they shared with me layers and layers of trauma and, and lots of stories, especially especially the people who have been subjected to multiple different um, traumas across that period of the 20 years. And it was very difficult for me to um, then make the decision to... Um, depict this visually by extracting some and putting others in and it wasn't my place to do that um so there was a lot of back and forth of what objects do you want to add what does it mean there were few other questions that I went back with because I didn't ask them to begin with and it was again intentional so I left I left one of the questions which was um what did you use what what to make you feel safe whether it's an object or um a memory or a thing or whatever it is and i left that because i thought we've had that conversation and it was incredibly re-traumatizing re-triggering and all of that active remembering brings with it quite a lot of um trauma back and then I gave them a few days and then I went back and asked that question because I thought by that point they had a bit of time to think about what they what what the, what is the thing that they want to talk about. I focused on specific traumas that they spoke about that they went back and forth at. So when I um, transcribed the interviews, I flattened the text very difficult to do that but it was um a long text thematically analyzed and then if they had come back at the same event or story this would be the bit that would mean more to them and they kept on coming back at things so these are the things that I then ended up extracting from the conversations to aid in the making of the um, maps. I was telling Amar downstairs, 
that um, visually as architects, designers, we've got this issue with aesthetics and wanting things to look good. But in this project, but also I, I you know, learned it the hard way from other projects is to let go of this aesthetics because this is not the point of the project. Um, and it wasn't the point or the intention of any of the things downstairs. But as it happens, it came with one, well, similar type of aesthetic across. Um, but it was it was that um, palimpsest approach of going back and forth at something, engaging with it, reading the text again. I read every single transcription more than 10 times back and forth to understand again and again. And I did it alone. I had research assistants who worked with me, which I didn't, which I didn't say thank you to. <laughs> and now I remember uh, Meredith is with us, who's a curator, but also my PhD student um, and is helping today. And I also had uh, Laura and Jordan, one of them worked with me um, on the maps and the other one covered for my teaching, which was amazing because then I had the time to do this. But what was really um, important in this process is that I had a handle over the meaning of the text within, and it was it was going to take time, and it did take. So that just the maps took a year from interview to completion, mm -hmm. and the things that you would see downstairs in the in the two glass cabinets took six months from start to finish. So there was a lot of curation, but then also trying to not lose any of the meanings that we had. And this is why I needed to put quotes as well from them, because these kind of um, completed that meaning as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about visualization or? Oh, yeah, no. I think just like a sentence, um, sometimes with the flood of information and the flood of images we see, like a work of art or a work of research can help us to slow down and have a little bit of slow thinking. Because, you know, we, we we live in an age of like social media and age of like everyone takes a photo these days. And I'm sure like with the invasion, it was before the social media period. But like now with the protests that we see in the last 12 years, at least it's all like recorded and reported and overshared. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're just like we're flooded with information without context. And a project like this can help us to slow down and have a, if we can say, like a slow thinking, building like narratives with the images and the visuals and bringing things together, bringing the stories into the map. Yeah, it's a really important point. It's increasingly rare that um, researchers actually do their own projects. So I really commend you on that, seriously. Um, so I think we wanted to have some time to get questions from all of you. So I'd like to open it up. Now, if you want to raise a hand, we can start with you. Um, if you if you could just um, introduce yourself, please. Uh, uh, my Thank name you. is uh, Salam Al Sam, uh, pathologist, uh, live and uh, work in, in the United Kingdom. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you all very much, and and thank you, Sana, for your presentation. I just wanted to say that the the terror and the pain and the suffering has not only applied to people who lived in Iraq, but outside Iraq and all over the, the world. I remember on the day of the two million uh, demonstrators demonstrating in London against the war, 
And uh, we all remember very well that the war started after 15 years of sanctions, which by themselves uh, were responsible for the death of half a million children in Iraq before the war. During the war, we saw the computer games here, that the, this country, which is full of people, is being bombarded by everything continuously. And it was called the shock and awe. The shock and awe does not affect only uh, soldiers and military people, but everyone. Uh, imagine children. Imagine in a state of curfew, people have a card, heart, heart attack or a woman in labor or somebody wanted to, make, to get medicine for their diabetes to survive. How many of those perished without us knowing about them? I mean, we call collateral damage is a building damage not intended to, but the main damage was on the psyche and the pain and suffering people have uh, in, in, endured during all that year, uh, war. And don't forget the animals, what happened to the dogs, the cats, and so on, who, which uh, people were, you know, trying to survive with the minimal amount of food and drink they have, what happened to their pets? All this, and we hear on the television when there was an interview with an American pilot, what happened during your raid on Iraq? And he said, Baghdad was lit like a Christmas tree. Can you imagine the comparison? He is trying to compare what he saw as a, as a city being bombarded and in burns all over the place, simulating that to a symbol of peace and celebration like a Christmas tree. And that was very painful for all of us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, Lizzie. Yeah. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, yes. Um, hi, I'm Lizzie Porter. I'm a foreign correspondent. And I live in I live in Baghdad normally. Um, thank you so much for the uh, research. I have a question about state involvement and state preservation of memory. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the exhibition downstairs. And across Iraq, I've seen sort of individual attempts to preserve memory, whether it's in Hatra, they've kept a wall where where ISIS, you know, practiced. And similarly, excuse me, similarly in uh, Karakosh, um, uh, in, in the church there, they've kept one wall. These are kind of individual acts of preservation. And I wonder how much the how much of a sense you get of the Iraqi state being interested in the say in exhibiting and preserving the last 20 years in the way that you are doing in the exhibition downstairs and whether it matters or not if they are um given that there are individual efforts for people to try and whether it matters whether or not there's a state-led memorial process it's a really good question, Lizzie, um, and thank you for that. I remember when um, the 1991 bomb, well, two missiles fell on the shelter, on the civilian shelter in Amriya, and um, there was this deliberation, what to do with the building afterwards. And um, I discussed that as a case study in my book because 
I then talk about how the trauma that is generated from that made Iraqis never set foot in a shelter, even though we had quite a lot of bomb shelters scattered across the city. And it's really interesting to look at it from that perspective because there was a shrine and you know it was turned, but it was done from the ground up. It was the mother who lost few children, well, all of her children, um, ended up running like the curation of, of uh, like a museum um, of the place. Um, but now it's closed and now it's turned into a military base. And I think we, we still struggle with keeping that um, holding a memory of a place that is destroyed or had or had so much trauma associated with it. Um, Amar would know loads more about this because I think you touch upon that in the book as well. But there is another example in Mosul, which was the building by Rafati Jadarchi, which is one of the top buildings in um, Mosul by one of the most famous architects in the country that we, was used by ISIS as the theater of basically the, um, the performance that they did, where they threw a lot of people, mainly men, suspected of being, well, according to them, um, of being homosexual from the top of the building. And the building was destroyed in the battle for Mosul. Well, rendered into rubble, but there was an incredibly long debate between professionals, between state, between um, UN organizations, between also the public, which was quite an interesting one because that was one of the few places that went into public consultation. What to do with the, with the wreckage? This is one of the most important buildings in the city, yet it's now this. And now, as you know, it's basically rendered into nothing. It got it got completely um, because they've decided that they want to wipe this one out. There is a there's a, a kind of a field in, in in its place. I think we haven't got that right still, and there is this still debate between conservation, preservation, as well as understanding how we deal with trauma. But if you look at that part of the world, we also don't engage with trauma in an open way. And I know that we have a lot of traumatized children as well as generations, but we have very little mental health support for that, but also acknowledging that trauma is a thing. So, you know, you get on with it and we get on with it. Life has, has to move on, but there is no mental health support in that space. So I think until we reach a point where we understand the relationship between what how trauma affects people and in what way this can be dealt with, then the built environment can come and start to kind of, you know, we can we can start to engage in that in that conversation. But if the state want to engage in projects like that, absolutely. I mean, it would be really interesting to see but I think at the moment we don't have dare I say one voice in that space um and potentially a lot of conflict can can come out of that but there is a lot of in really important work happening at the moment and I know representatives of the Nahrain network 
um, who's been actively working on projects to, 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 you know, across Iraq from top to bottom, not just archaeological sites, not just world heritage sites, but, it, but other um, uh, uh, heritage, kind of cultural heritage aspects of, of the life of Iraqis that they're trying to uh, preserve and maintain. Yeah. Oh, there was there was a hand there. Karen Jabroska, freelance journalist. I was wondering from all your interviews and research, is there one theme or one message that you would like to convey, maybe from yourself and from the people you spoke to? I don't want to speak on their behalf. I, I feel like I, I always shied away from speaking on behalf of um, 15 people. But I think one message that Ali Baroudi mentioned, Ali, I don't know whether you want to come and say it. Um, when we had the interview and at the end, he was saying to me, um, wars come and go, but the trauma lingers and stays with us. And we have this... Um, and, and tapping into the stories that we've just talked about brings all of that back um, into full flourishing. So there is this, the time passes, the military goes away, the rubble stays, the people stay, and the trauma stays with them. And I think that is very true of what's going on in Iraq at the moment. Things are still raw. So there was that I don't think there is an ending or one thing, but I also found it quite difficult to say that is just the message that they bring um, or this story brings the message that kind of speaks on behalf of the rest of the country. And one of the ones that I can bring as an example is um, I was really interested to know what was happening in Kurdistan, Iraq when the rest of Iraq, mainly Baghdad, was getting bombarded, knowing that um, Kurdistan facilitated the you know, American troops to come into the country, they supported them, so they weren't bombed. So I thought they were living their lives like normal, going about their own lives. And as it happens, they were in exactly the same way that we were, in Baghdad in makeshift rooms with um, makeshift masks, which was a really um, telling story of the 1990 and well, the 1988 um, chemical attack that happened to them by the previous regime. And they were scared of Saddam's retaliation. So they were prepared, sat waiting, nothing happened. For the entire time that Iraq was until the fall of the regime, you know, in April, they sat in corners of rooms with coal wrapped with cotton, makeshift masks on their faces. People not left their houses with windows sealed with plastic bags because they couldn't. So I think, and I, and we didn't do that. In Baghdad, and it was very difficult to then tell a story or tell one one thing that represents all of that across. 
Hi, um, I'm Omar Al-Ghazi. I'm uh, Associate Professor in Media Communication here at LSE. My, my question is about um, trauma, because you know, you've, you've, you've talked a lot about trauma. Um, and it is a question that I also struggle with. I'm from kind of Syrian uh, and Lebanese uh, background. Um, we are in a cultural moment where that word is overused by many people where now there's an expectation that everybody has a has a trauma and of course the level of suffering that you know you are are talking about in the book um, with your interlocutors the duration of that suffering over many years and the aftermath of, of that suffering so how like first of all do you define trauma in the book in a specific way and do you do you think given this cultural moment maybe we need new language to, to discuss this long durée of, of suffering when so much meaning has been lost from, from that word? I use the word protracted trauma quite a lot. Um, I felt for quite some time that I had to do some trauma training and understand how psychologists see trauma. But that was also because I was really interested by how our brain respond to trauma so um from and since then i've been um working a lot with psychologists who are who are interested in mental health and trauma um studies because of that but it i think a lot of the a lot of the work that i did came around and meant that there was a cathartic moment in the way that people were being asked the question, told, explain the answers. So for example, I would never ask the question of what did you lose? And we all lost people dear to us, things, uh, homes, all of that. But I, it would be questions around the events that would lead us to potentially that, but we will not ask specific questions. So there's a lot of um, layers with of complexity and I do I, I totally see what you're saying especially also the other word which is a buzzword lived experience and a lot of people have lived experience and I think potentially yes there is a type of language that we need to start to address but I work a lot on spatial trauma so that is the one that gets defined and really analyzed and I use rupture to not just mean the negative connotations of it, which is exactly what trauma is as well, um, in fact. So, you know, we've heard of PTSD, but actually um, there is growth with trauma. So brain growth and, you know, um, and development that comes from trauma. But it, it you know, it, it, it crosses, and I can see my uncle, you know, straightening because, you know, wanting to say something <laughs> medical. <laughs> Um, but I, I think I think there is certainly um, complexity in 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 that word, and it shouldn't be used lightly. And I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. There is a yeah. question in the back, but the, yeah, and I'll go there. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your work. I really appreciate it. My name is Didi, um, and I'm from Camden Arts Centre. I work in public programming there, and currently we have an exhibition by Mohammed Sami, um, whose work deals with quite similar themes 
to your work. Um, and so my question is, in terms of language, because part of his work is trying to kind of interrogate emerging language within painting as part of his history. Um, in terms of your work, and I guess the word rupture, I'm just really interested in any kind of patterns in terms of emerging language within architectural design that your work has been, um, yeah, has kind of might have observed so far. Thank you. Thank you. It's a really good question. And I think um, this has emerged through the thematics that I did across the 15 interviews. Um, and it will it will happen later on this year, hopefully. So there is there is um, so the idea of the book is to come up with a, a kind of a toolkit of um, a, a spatial justice that comes from within. It's engaging with people through participatory um, type practices, but also engaging with um, a co-design approach um, uh, in that way. So I'm I'm hoping that this will come together, but I don't have the exact answer to give you right now because it's incredibly complex across cutting um, several thematics um, within within the spatial practices that I've investigated. But I can talk to you more about it downstairs. Sorry, I can't see you. <laughs> Thank you. I think we'll just have one last question. Please go ahead. Hi, Sena. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, massive congratulations on the exhibition and the book. Uh, all sounds really exciting. I wondered um, whether you could comment um, on any gendered dynamics you saw in terms of spatial trauma um, that you observe through your stories of ruptured domesticities around Iraq. Um, that's uh, uh, one. And the other one I, ha I had was I was curious to know whether um, anything that came out of your research that was counterintuitive or surprising that you could tell us about. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll, I'll start with the latter. Um, mobility and the meaning of... So when I first started working on the project, um, the word refuge kind of um, came to mean more of a stationed place thing that is kind of pausing and has has that kind of um time stops in that in that space and throughout the interviews a theme of mobility and charting routes of escape from one place to another um, and also not just in one direction it's actually going back and forth and changing those roots all the time was also a mechanism of refuge. It was also a type of refuge. And I was really then opened up that meaning from it being the static meaning of a physical space to the material culture also had an element of refuge. And that also brought yet a new dimension to the work that I was um, uh, trying to engage with. And this is what I was talking about in the in that the interviews, they had authority over those things that they gave me. And, and yes, incentive came out of that, but it was really interesting to see. The other one was that switch and mix between what's familiar and what's unfamiliar, which I found really interesting. So um, in the conversation with Ali, I was um, talking to him and he said, it was for the first time in our lives, we took a bag and went to my aunt's house. And even though it's my aunt, 
but we've never stayed in her house before. And this kind of all of a sudden familiar that becomes very unfamiliar, all of, you know, um, both at the same time, I think it was really interesting to look at all of those aspects of the work. Um, on the gender, I specifically out of the 15 focused on women's voices. Um, and a lot of a lot of that was to and from different sections of society. Um, I also tried to cover different backgrounds and religions and so on and so forth and and um, to give a voice to all of all of those communities. But I think certainly the sectarian violence times where I call it the horizontal and the vertical impact of tr that spatial trauma um, made more of a very clear divisions between um, male roles and female roles within society and made um, made in enormous wedges in that that potentially some of them healed but others are still open um and I'm not sure it could change back and I'm not sure it's actually healthy to change back but potentially some sort of different arrangements might might come with yet more as 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 things unfold um Iraq now is um the fifth because we have to be something really top of something um we're the fifth in the world on climate crisis list and this is incredibly dangerous so the the marshes have dried people now we see migration and um displacement happening from the 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 um uh, villages and from places where people lived all their lives in that way um leaving behind not only their way of life but the um uh their land the you know the, 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 that this is all they know um which means that agriculture has struggled which means that food on the table is not as and and it also meant that there is an enormous amount of people now right in center of cities which left cities dissected and overpopulated in so many different ways again that i don't think it, there will be any re result to that i know um uh, amar just mentioned that i don't mention any statistics but this is one number that i'm kind of grappling with so um Iraq population was 27 million at 2003. 2020, it became 43 million. There are a deficit of over 4 million housing units in the country. And the informal housing sector is staggeringly everywhere and especially in major cities this is not an easy problem to solve and it will take years to solve but that is one of the things that made me look at how people engage with spaces because we can't deny the fact that we've got millions of people in informal housing and other thousands, you know, in the tens of thousands in camps still inside Iraq, internally displaced. 
something is going to have to happen. And if if we don't turn an eye and say we have to shut them down and instead engage with how they are operating and how they how they are popping up everywhere is one of the ways that we can find solutions to the problem, definitely. Thank you. Um, I think on on that note, just to say that um, you know this project is very special because it does jump these spatial scales from the domestic to the urban to the whole country, and this is incredibly rare um, to do and to do it so richly and to you know weave these narratives together. So congratulations again. Um, okay, thank you all for your energy and your attention and. Thank you to Sena Alimar. Um, <laughs> so now we will go downstairs and see the exhibit and have a reception. And thank you to LSE Middle East Center.